This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. I use DigitalOcean to host a side project, and I'm starting to move the hosting for my blog and this podcast off their current hosting solution to DigitalOcean. With a large selection of one-click apps, from the basics of the LAMP stack, to Ghost and WordPress for blogs, to pre-set up Docker host images, with droplets that can spin up in 55 seconds, the ability to manage SSH keys for remote access, and more, DigitalOcean makes it super easy to get your project up and running. With the ability to easily add team members, use their API to scale out your applications, and have droplets in data centers around the world, DigitalOcean is ready to take on your larger projects as well. Have a question on how to set something up with DigitalOcean? DigitalOcean has a strong community around creating documentation and tutorials as well to get you set up and running quickly. New users can get up and running on DigitalOcean for free using promo code GEEKRY, all cap, to get $10 worth of credit when you get started. This episode is sponsored by PurelyFunctional.tv. Are you looking for a career change but worry that you will face difficulty trying to get your first job in closure? Do you have a limited functional programming background? Would you like a guided path to learning professional closure? PurelyFunctional.tv's online mentoring has just launched. It is step-by-step online mentoring taking you from closure dappler to professional. Sign up with the link PurelyFunctional.tv geekery to get 50% off the first month. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, coming up on February 18th and 19th in 2016 in Krakow, Poland, Lambda Days will be taking place. The call for papers is open and will continue through December 1st. An early bird registration is now open as well. Visit lambdadays.org to submit your talk proposal or to register. And make sure to use code FUNKYGEEKS4 to win, that's F-U-N-K-Y-G-E-E-K-Z, the number 4, D-W-I-N, for 10% off early bird and regular registration. Right after that, on February 20th, Closure D will be taking place in Berlin. Closure D is an independent, non-profit conference from the Closure community for the Closure community. Focus points will be interesting developments and ideas in the global Closure community, as well as introductory level talks highlighting the fun aspects of learning and messing with closure. The call for papers is currently open and will close on November 30th. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to help spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and I will put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host Proctor, and this week with us we have Johnny Wynn. Johnny, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm Johnny Wynn, also known as Johnny Rugger on the internet, so I think that confuses people a lot of times. I'm the host of the podcast Elixir Fountain. Been doing that for about since I guess since the beginning of summer. So, anything in particular you want to know, or you want the full story now? We'll dig into the full story now of how you got into software development, what your background looked like, and then how you came into functional programming and Elixir. Because I know you had a few little attempts with languages and playing with some other languages before you took your deep dive into Elixir. Well, definitely, yeah. And you know, I think anybody that's been developing for any amount of time ends up at least poking around in other languages, or should. If they, if they haven't yet, they should, just because it helps change the way you think. Even if you don't leave your current language, it helps change the way that you think about how you're solving problems and see other takes on problem solving from 
other points of view. But yeah, my story actually, you know, it's a long road that I've walked, so to speak. I wasn't one of those people that always used computers. When I was really young, I got into them. You know, I've said before, I used to have like a Commodore 64C and loved writing code back then. And then I kind of got away from it for a long time. And really, even the path that I took was quite the eclectic one. You know, I went down, I was a chef for a while and left the kitchen to go work in doing CAD. And that's kind of where I started kind of rekindling that whole, I want to actually write stuff that builds things. I started working around with some of the scripting tools that the CAD software had. And somebody I was working with was like, you should get into web pages. And I was like, of course, this is back in like 98, 99. You know, the internet bubble was popping or right around popping. So it was like, sure. But at the same time, I like, I didn't know how would I even start that? You know, how do you get on? Yeah, I didn't go to college for it or anything like that. And of course, you know, there's the funny story. The guy's like, well, just go get a certification and then they'll hire you. <laughs> I was like, okay, is it that easy really? And so yeah, I took a, uh, it was the CIW certification, Certified Internet Webmaster. Uh, sounds very important, but it was really just basically like a three-week class and three tests and boom, you got a certification. But, you know, it got my foot in the door with a company building applications. It was actually a a network consulting company that needed a programmer on staff and didn't have a big budget. So I basically took pennies on the dollar to be able to go in and just start working. But it was a great experience. Actually, a lot of the stuff that I still carry with me today, I picked up then, you know. Little sayings, you know, my boss used to tell me, it's not what you know, it's how fast you can find the answers. Little things like that just really helped. Every time something new came up, it was like, you know, no, I don't know this right now, but I can find out. I know how to figure out how to do it. And that was a skill that I tried to develop really early on. Back then, I was using all sorts of languages, too. Just to let you know kind of a little bit about the environment, you know, my first day, of course, you know, I've been working at a company for a couple of years at this point on computers, whatever. And, you know, you showed up to work, everything was set up for you and you sit down and you just do your work. Where I show up my first day at my first programming job. And my boss was like, all right, well, you need to set up your computer. There's a bunch of computers over there. Just go grab one and throw whatever operating system you want on there. And at the time, I was like, uh, what do you mean? <laughs> I was pretty clueless as far as like some of that stuff goes. So it was like, I think I started out with Windows. And I think like a week or so into it, I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm going to try these other things. And so I started experimenting with different. I settled on Linux. Actually, Red Hat was the one that I first started using just because it was the easiest to install at the time. I remember Mandrake was around, stuff like that. But it planted that seed of experimenting and testing things out, seeing what else is out there. It's not just what you're comfortable with, but, you know, break out of your comfort zone and like look at other things. So, you know, during that time period, I spent like two years there and it was, it was hard because I was working for next to nothing, but I also had very few constraints. I was pretty much free to If a project came up and I wanted to do it in a particular language for whatever reason, I was more than welcome to do it. You know, I worked with everything from VB6 to PHP and Perl. I know I did a Perl application way back when Postgres was still slow. It was a migration from a Perl app that was using an Oracle database to using a Postgres database. The guy was tired of paying the license fees for Oracle, and so he decided to switch over to Postgres went on from there. Definitely a lot of experimenting back in those days. I think I even wrote some Flash, which is fun stuff. I don't know how if people are still writing Flash or if they're just forced to. But that was a great time. And then, of course, when I left there, I left there and ended up taking a .NET gig. 
.NET was really early in the really early stages. I think it was at like 1.1 or something like that. This is about 2002. And really the decision to go with .NET, I remember it was a startup. It was my first startup, I guess, my first official startup. And it was RV dealer management software. And the guy I was working for, he had been a cold fusion developer and really wanted to build it in cold fusion. And I was like, um, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not feeling that. <laughs> he showed me some code that he wrote where it was like SQL embedded in everything. It was like all over the place. I was like, yeah, that's just not good. You know, even in those early days, you know, I'd only been a developer for a couple of years. And even then it was like the red flags were flying up all over the place. And so we kind of started poking around and looking at some different languages that we would want to go with. And we ended up settling on VB.net for the most logical reason of he had done some VB work before. And so he thought it would be easy for him to transition to. So as you know, you got to love making architectural decisions based on <laughs> stuff like that. But in any case, it worked out well. The application, there's a lot of cool things that were happening with it. There was a lot of like accounting software integration pieces, things like that. And it was a huge app. You don't realize how much is involved with a dealership when you talk about sales and finance, parts and service. It was my first POS app that I wrote, which was interesting to deal with. But I spent, even after leaving there, I continued down the .NET path. Uh, I got into C Sharp right after that. And then you know I spent 10 years after that working in C Sharp. And for the most part, I was pretty happy with .NET for a long time. There was things I didn't like about it, but I was comfortable with it enough. But then I started looking for something more. I was like, something's not right. Like it doesn't, like I feel like there's other things out there. And I remember this is very early on with Rails. Somebody had showed me, actually it was, I can't remember the actual year now off the top of my head, but you know, somebody had showed me a Rails app and they were like, look, this is, this is great. You can prototype your applications like super fast. And I was like, oh, that's great. But even at the time I was like, yeah, that's great and all, but kind of doing the C-sharp thing. And it's funny as I'm still friends with the guy that introduced me to Rails all these years later. In any case, so doing the C-sharp path, finally, I, I started really looking at Ruby and got into Ruby and really liked what it did, L liked how it was set up, liked the freeness of it. You have dynamic types and things like that. You can be so much more flexible. And of course, got into Rails. Now, around this time, I, I, I uh, took a job with HashRocket, actually as an apprentice. Even with, I think, <laughs> I had 12 years experience, I think, or something like that when I took the job as an apprentice. But it was switching languages. And I was like, you know what? I'll do whatever I can to make the switch. I think that's one of the things that I've always been. It's like, whatever I've got to do to get where I want to be, I'll, I'll take that risk. And so the move to HashRocket as an apprentice was a great move. It got me into Ruby, got me doing Rails. And I spent a lot of time. But I'll tell you what, it, it grew old really fast. Just because a lot of the problems that we're, I wanted to try to solve Rails wasn't a good fit for it per se. You know, there was definitely issues with, you know, concurrency is just, you had to have all these other things stacked around it to stand up what you really wanted to do. And ultimately, I wanted to kind of build bigger projects and things like that. I wanted to have those problems to solve. And that's when I started wandering again. I started looking at several other languages. You know, the functional paradigm was always interesting to me. It's like, it seemed more along the lines of the way I think. And that's a personal thing. That's not necessarily saying that's the right way. It's just a, a, from a personal aspect, I think in data transformation instead of all these objects all over the place. And so it, it makes sense to me when I, when I deal with functional programming. But the problem was at the time when I first started experimenting is one, they wouldn't stick. 
like Erlang, and I really enjoyed Erlang when I first started looking at it. But my problem was at the time is that I couldn't figure out. It was almost like back to 1999. How do I get to do that? Because nobody I know is doing it. And the only companies that seem to be doing it are somewhere far away. So it seemed kind of one of those things, as much as I liked it, it didn't seem like a plausible thing for me to invest too much time in other than just learning from it, which is fine. Closure is another one because even at HashRocket, we had started kind of making some you know, strides in like doing some closure apps and things like that, especially the Chicago office was really into closure. And I started looking at it and just something about it, I think, and I've said this before, the thing that got me was it felt like the, my first closure app, I had to call into Java. Like the very first thing to do is load some Java libraries. And so, yeah, I'm doing some stuff in Clojure, but I'm immediately calling into an object-oriented language. Well, that felt broken to me. Like it didn't feel right. Like it felt like I'm not doing functional programming. I'm putting a functional facade on object-oriented development, you know? So, and I, and I could be completely wrong in those opinions, but that's just the way it felt. I continued going down the path to try to see what else was out there. And, you know, at some point I stu- stumbled onto Elixir. Elixir was really young at the time, and it's the actual core language. It's, it's not that big. It's really easy to get in and read through the source code. And that's what I did a lot is I started reading through the source code. And then somewhere around then, Dave Thomas announced the Prague Prog book. And so I picked up the Prague Prog book, and I remember it was, this was like in May of 2013, maybe-ish. Yeah, something like that. And I picked it up, and I was actually on my way to speak at MagmaConf down in Mexico, which, by the way, if you ever get a chance to go to MagmaConf, great conference. It's fun. The, the people that put it on are just awesome, great, friendly guys. It's the Crowd Inc. guys. It's an awesome team. Uh, Esteban is probably one of the best conference organizers I've seen. Um, but so on my way down, I start reading the book, and, and my, I'm like, I don't even want to do my talk now. I, I want to talk about this. I want to start telling people about this language. I can't believe more people aren't looking at it. And so I you know, started working with it. That summer, I wrote a couple of smaller libraries. Inflex was one of the first ones for doing something like inflections and doing singularize and pluralize and things like that. And I also got into Kronos, which is a library that I wrote to deal with like date formatting because everybody loves dates as tuples, right? So ended up writing that library. And I started putting together some talks. My first talk that I gave on Elixir was at RubyConf in 2013 and it was down in Miami and you know it was basically how to throw together and I was using Dynamo which was like the web framework back then it was actually Dynamo was created so that Jose could test his theories on how Elixir would work as a web framework or within a web framework and it actually has since been not really sunsetted but it's not really used anymore but in any case it was you know basically trying to show how to write Elixir web applications and what I did was I mixed in Ruby with it. So there was some things at the time that Elixir did not do. And so I used Ruby to kind of handle some of it. Like BDD was one of the things that we did. So I used Ruby for the BDD part and implemented everything in Elixir. It was, you know, it was a really interesting project. But at that conference is when I met Josh Adams, who, uh, if you don't know, he does Elixir SIPs. And so I met Josh Adams and he was like, you know, you should do something. And we were, we're kind of talking back and forth after my talk. And he mentioned doing a newsletter. Actually, we can kind of blame Josh Adams for pretty much most of everything that I do, come to think of it. He's the one that kind of pushed me down the road to doing a newsletter. And, and I basically went home and started doing a newsletter. 
so for the longest time, the Elixir Fountain was started as a newsletter, ran for close to the next year, or maybe a little bit more, I guess, something like that, maybe a year and a half or something. And for a lot of the time, there was a lot of stuff coming out on Elixir, which was great. But then there would be these lulls where nobody would be talking about it. It was really hard to scrape together blog posts and things like that. I pretty much reported on anything that I could. And somewhere, I guess it was last December, was when Jose approached me and said that Platforma Tech was going to do a newsletter and wanted to see if that was okay. I was like, you know, that's fine. I hadn't actually put out a newsletter in probably a month or so, a month and a half. That's fine. You know, go ahead and take it. But then I kind of had this like people following Elixir Fountain, stuff like that. And I didn't want it just to go to waste. Figured that I still could be a value to the community. I still could be helpful. There's plenty of stuff that I could do, but I had to figure out what it was. And sure enough, I think it was May of this past year, I started talking to Josh Adams again. I said, you know, Josh, I said, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what to do. Let's think about doing a podcast. What do you think? He said, do it. Just go ahead and do it. I said, would you listen to it? He said, yeah, if you do it, people will listen. <laughs> I was like, all right. So I started doing the podcast and I've been doing it ever since. The first guest was Jose Valim. He's at over 2,000 listens now, I think, on his episode. I think we've got over 13,000 listens total. We were bi-weekly at first for the longest time. And then here in the last, since October 2nd was our first weekly episode. Uh, and we've been going weekly ever since. That kind of catches you up on most of the stuff, right? Yeah, that's a good and broad background. We managed to talk a little bit at ElixirConf and hang out on some of those nights just because we coordinated back and forth because I know it picked up when you were first working on the podcast. And so we had kind of coordinated and we were both in town and we talked. So yeah, I thought you had a very interesting and broad background and perspective. But you mentioned Erlang and Closure. How did you find out about those? You said you thought functional programming aligned with your way of thinking. How did you first kind of stumble across Clojure and Erlang as you were going through? What prompted that exploration of those languages specifically? It was actually a coworker at Hashrocket that turned me on to Erlang. Matt Conway, who's now at Heroku, was playing around with it. You know, at Hashrocket, we did the open source Fridays where you kind of could do whatever you wanted to do as long as you knew you were working on something. And he had been working on Erlang. And so I was just kind of looking at it. He also got into Go for a while too. But we were looking at Erlang, and it was just really interesting. And so I kind of started diving into it a little bit myself. But he kind of felt the same way I think I did, is that, you know, it's like, yeah, this is cool to play around with, but the Erlang jobs aren't in Jacksonville. It's not like you're going to, you're just doing it for learning purposes if you're planning on staying here. That's still a couple of years ago. Now you could probably pick up an Erlang job here, just would be a remote job, which would be just fine with me. Now, Closure, on the other hand, Closure, like I said, the Chicago office had started playing around with Closure, and we had actually decided to do, as part of our open source learning at Hashrocket, we were going to look at Closure down here in Jacksonville. And we went through the uh, Project Euler, E-U-L-E-R. And it's just a series of exercises where you just try to solve problems. It's great fun, and it, it worked really well with especially trying to learn Closure. It's a nice way to step through things in the language and the first red flag to me, and since then, I've actually talked to other people that do closure today and say it's not the same as it was a few years ago. But, you know, it just felt like as soon as I was going to do something, I was immediately pulling in Java, which just felt weird to me and kind of like it was breaking the paradigm. So were those both your first forays into functional programming and that's what got you into it? Or had you had some exposure? Because I know at some point, I don't know if you stayed around for C-sharp to get the lambdas in it and 
link, but C Sharp started introducing some of those concepts without pushing functional programming, but rolling some of those features in. So were you around for that? And did you manage to get some of those exposure as well before you took the deep dive into functional programming languages? Yeah, I think that, I mean, well, I definitely used lambdas and I was around for link and stuff like that. And I took advantage of those things without thinking about, I, I guess that's, I don't necessarily relate that to my phone because I didn't know at the time that's what I was doing. Had I known more about like what I was doing, <laughs> You know, a lot of times when I was doing .NET, especially, I, uh, for the most part, I was in a bubble. A lot of the jobs that I've had, I've either worked by myself or with like one other person. And, and in a lot of those cases, it was I was the lead technically for the projects. So it was kind of this weird, like I felt like a lot of times my learning was in a bubble. And without coming from a CS background, it does kind of put some hurdles up for you. You have to force yourself to learn other things because... It's very easy to be a developer and spend an entire career living in that bubble and not having outside context without seeing other things that are happening in, uh, with languages and things like that. So, you know, a new feature might come out and I might look at it, but I'm not thinking of it necessarily as a functional feature. You know what I'm saying? Now, I do remember when F Sharp came out and I remember playing with that and there was a lot of talk, uh, you know, of course, .NET had the MVC applications. It was basically kind of like... What's funny about that is the web routing that it used was the same routing mechanism that had been used in ASP applications. They just kind of tweaked it a little bit. Nobody had ever thought to use it, which was kind of, oh, I'm sure there was people out there that were, but you know, for the most part, nobody thought about it. So they just kind of tweaked what they had, and they were like, yeah, we can do MVC, just no problem. But yeah, I remember there was a lot with like F-sharp and doing MVC applications with F-sharp. That was kind of a hot topic there for a while. But F-sharp, that's another one of those cases where the exposure that I've had to functional languages has been on such a small scale, like, yes, I can learn from it, but I, I hadn't had a place to apply it. You know what I'm saying? Like, even when I was a consultant doing .NET, I wasn't going to be able to sell F-sharp to a client. I could sell C-sharp to them. I could sell even VB.NET if I had to, but I could not sell F-sharp just because finding F-sharp developers was hard. You know, finding .NET developers, whether or not they're doing VB or C Sharp, is relatively easy. You know, but finding somebody to do an F Sharp project, and especially as a consultant, there's always that responsibility to build something that can be passed off and maintained by somebody else. And I think that's one of the things that consulting really teaches you that you don't necessarily get working at a company. You know, you assume that when you're working at a company and you're going to be there for a long time, if you if you write something that you're like, oh, well, I, I can always come back to it and fix this in a month or two, or, you know, I'll wait till after the release. And you know, as a consultant, you don't know when it, it's going to end. Like at any time, a client can say, okay, I'm done. You know, I don't want to spend any more. We're going to finish the app. So you have to always code, not just for yourself, but code with the idea that you are definitely not the long-term maintainer of something. So there's a certain amount of responsibility when it comes to making technology decisions as a consultant. You have to give the client something that they can take and take somewhere else and, and have people. You can't build the clever solution because somebody else is going to have to figure that out later. And it might be you, but it might not. Yeah. And when I was getting with the question about Link, it wasn't necessarily that you knew it was functional programming at the time. And when I first saw it with .NET, I didn't realize that was functional programming either. But then starting to do the functional programming and look into the structure and interpretations of the computer programs book, I was able to start to say, oh, okay, 
that's more familiar because I was exposed to it without even knowing what it was. I guess that's the thing is I just maybe I've blacked out a lot of my C sharp day. <laughs> I, I shouldn't say C sharp was really it was really good to me. But yeah, there's a lot of things that that I was doing back then that kind of forgotten about. Although I, I know like when I first saw Ecto and the structure of the way that you do queries in Ecto, I was like, this looks just like Link. Eric has since come out and said, yeah, the, a lot of the, the syntax was inspired by Link and things like that. And so, yeah, it does. When I see those things now, it, it makes more sense to me. I think that's the thing. So you mentioned Ecto. Do you want to give a rundown of Ecto for people who haven't heard of it and aren't familiar with the Elixir ecosystem? So, yeah. So Ecto, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. So Ecto is basically... It's a wrapper around your, your database. It uses a, a query pattern similar to Link, but you have things like Ecto models that kind of define your structure, of course. It feels very much like an ORM to me, and I know that I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying it's an ORM, but it feels like that because you do define your models. It's run through a series of callbacks similar to Active Record, which I know I'm going to get in trouble for that one too, but it, it is kind of similar. Not that that's necessarily bad. It's not, but it's it's a little different than what feels like a pure functional query tool. And I know, like I said, I'm probably going to get in trouble for all that. But it, and I like Ecto. Don't get me wrong. I, there's a lot of things in Ecto I do like, but it's a larger solution. Whereas a lot of times, what I, what I do when I'm dealing with like functional things is I try to focus on small tools that do the thing that it's supposed to do and do it really well. And like, don't worry about anything else. I know one of the libraries that I've been contributing to quite a bit lately is a Rob Connery project called Mobius. It's a true functional query tool. It does data transformation. The requests are coming in. There's no data structures. Whatever's in your database is fine. You just you basically say, look, I'm inserting these values into these columns in this table. We can do transactions and things like that. But there's also been some really cool things that I've been able to build or help build with it is, you know, I, I think I was telling you in the pre-show that I built a broker, like a connection broker. We're actually kind of in the process of testing it out right now. And I know one of the other people that are working on the project was talking to me today. He cleaned up some stuff with the insert and we're getting like 10,000 rows inserted in 0.6 seconds, which is phenomenally fast, or it seems really fast to me considering what I'm used to. But like I said, it goes back to what I think about, you know, when I, and I'm actually using it in a project that's an API call to do a search. Because I can transform what's essentially a query command, I can transform it, I can pipe it into various functions that allow me to construct a query, and then I execute the query and return the result set. It's that delayed execution. Do what you need to do, then execute and return a result set. And it seems to be working really well. And it feels like it follows that functional data transformation pattern. Sorry, I know I kind of breezed over Ecto. <laughs> It was just people might not have heard of it, so when you yeah, were talking oh, yeah. about it, just to kind of give an overview of what that is for anybody unfamiliar with the system. Right. So you mentioned you've pulled in Elixir into your job, mm -hmm. and you've talked about a little bit on your podcast in referencing a high-level overview, but do you want to kind of give a rundown of how you found introducing Elixir to your coworkers and bringing them in and the uptake that you've had coming from a team that hasn't had functional programming necessarily or specifically Elixir and then getting that adoption and brought in and what hurdles you might have had to have or if it was readily adopted and then the shift in mindset as you've seen people pick it up and start running with it. 
Definitely. Yeah. And we've had a, a really good response to it, actually. We're essentially a Ruby shop and we were looking at ways to make the application better and how we can move to what's essentially a microservice architecture to where we can swap pieces in and out and things like that. You know, the, the panacea of all SOA, right? Microservices. <laughs> so the first thing that we did was we introduced an API gateway. Essentially, Elixir was brought in to handle inbound requests and give us that abstraction behind all, you know, any of the backend services. And it's worked really well. It handles the calls are in, it calls into the authentication piece and authorizes requests, make sure they can go through, and then we can send it on to the back end. It's allowed us to then, we don't change our contract per se with the client, like it's always contacting the same endpoint, but we can swap it out on the back side however we want, which is convenient because we've already started writing new services that either replacing old services or adding new functionality using Elixir. And of course, like I said, one of the services that I'm working on right now, we're using a Phoenix app, but kind of a non-traditional Phoenix app. Phoenix, for those of you that aren't familiar, is a web framework that's based on MVC. Of course, it does have like channels and all that other stuff, but basically based on MVC. But I'm using it as a, essentially grabbing the router piece and then making calls into plug, which is like an Elixir middleware between your front-end web framework and your web server. Traditionally, that's Cowboy, which is written in Erlang. And it just, the inbound requests come in and the router actually just routes them straight to a plug. And then the plug does whatever it needs to do and then returns the request, which is kind of nice. That service, actually, that's the service that I'm working on. Uh, we've managed to throw together, for, the, for all intents and purposes, development time has only been a few days to get it up and running and out the door, which is kind of nice. And it seems to be working really well. That's actually the project that we're using Mobius in. And it works perfectly. It, there's not a whole lot of dependencies. You know, there's not a lot of extra cruff around it. It just kind of does its thing and that's it. But yeah, that API gateway, and that's the same sort of thing. Like there's no, it's a proxy to the other side of the application. It handles those inbound requests, does whatever it needs to do, and then sends that in. And that's allowed us to put a nice gateway up that we can then swap out pieces on the backside. As far as the adoption goes, there was a lot of, I wouldn't call it FUD, but there's a lot of, there was a lot of like, oh, I don't know if we should go down this route sort of thing. And then, but I, I've noticed the response from Ruby Dev. I haven't had anybody come to me and say, I don't think this is going to work. I don't like this. I had one developer that I was working with that I hadn't had a chance to actually work with, with Elixir. He just kind of picked some stuff up and started working on it. And, you know, he came back, he's like, I don't think this is right. Can you check, take a look at it? And I was like, oh, yeah, there's a bit of, there's a bit of Ruby in your Elixir. <laughs> you know, it was just kind of a joke. But I mean, it's like, you know, it was very much the Ruby approach to solving the problem. And we kind of cleaned it up a little bit and talked through it and kind of talked through it. And that's actually, that's one of the things that I've had success with when I'm trying to teach people about uh, Elixir that come from Ruby is they talk through like what they would do and they kind of write some pseudo code for like the Ruby that they would do. And then we kind of work back through and say, okay, well, I see what you're trying to accomplish and this is how it would be done in Elixir. And that's been a good, and then there's like the aha moments. Oh, okay, well, that makes more sense. Instead of just either saying, just go with it or just me doing everything and then have them having come back and look, I think having that conversation around the implementation itself and like showing them that there is another way of thinking about the problem. You just have to kind of sometimes invert it or sometimes just think about it differently. Just change the way you're thinking about it. You know what the problem is you're trying to solve. You just don't know how to solve it necessarily. 
and that's been a lot of success. We've seen a lot of success. And I know the person that I'm pairing with on this project, uh, she was really excited. And she was told when we decided to do this in Elixir, she had the option to either go transfer onto a Ruby project or move forward with the Elixir project. And she was like, no, I'm, I'm more than happy to learn. Uh, hearing that made me really happy. Because there is always that concern that you know you bring in this new language and people are like, no, I don't want to learn the new language. I want to stay with what I'm comfortable with. So seeing that kind of response is awesome. So you mentioned the FUD, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt. What were some of the arguments against bringing in Elixir that had to do with the fear, uncertainty, and doubt? And how did you work to help promote that and lessen those fears and reassure people that this could actually be something that worked? I remember one of the first conversations was, are you going to hire me a bunch of Elixir developers? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm going to take the Ruby developers and teach them how to do Elixir because they're not, and this is, it's kind of always a, I don't want to say a pet peeve, but it drives me nuts when somebody says that I am language X or I am framework X developer. Because you have just pigeonholed yourself into such a small subset of what you really should be doing. You're a developer. You're a software developer. Your job is to sometimes learn new things. And so it's really all of our responsibilities as developers is to say, I want to try to use the best technology for the problem I'm trying to solve because it's the right choice. I don't want my hangups about learning new things to impede my progress in building great software. So. I think that was one of the things that was almost one of those touche moments. Like, you know, yeah, you're right. Just because you're switching a language, you shouldn't have to go out and rehire a bunch of people. You should be able to retrain developers on staff to the new language. Or, and it's not like it has to be an all or nothing. You know, there's still a large chunk of the application that's still written in Ruby. And it's going to be for the foreseeable future. I mean, you're not just going to up and rewrite the entire application just because, you know, you want to change languages. It's breaking off chunks, putting it in where it fits. Like there's some pieces of the application that run slower than others that are holding us back. So it's start with those and replace those pieces. If they work out really well, then you continue to move forward. If they don't help the problem, that there's something else that's causing, then maybe it wasn't a good call. But in most cases, I think that you know Elixir is going to speed things up over Ruby. It's just... Without throwing more hardware. I mean, you can throw more hardware at Ruby. That's pretty much the solution for speed, right? Or performance. And I think the other thing is, from a developer's perspective, there is a certain amount of fear of like, well, am, am I going to lose everything that I've already gained as far as my knowledge? To me, that answer is no. Anything that you know, knowledge isn't something that just arrived. It's built over time. And so all your experiences, everything that you've done in every other language... It's kind of like what I was saying earlier, where learning a new thing only is going to help what you already do. So if you've already got a knowledge of language or languages, when you learn that next language, you're building on that. You know something already. It's almost, I did a talk about how we acquire knowledge and things like that. One of the techniques is scaffolding, taking something you know and propping it up around the new thing that you're learning and then slowly taking pieces of it away until you truly understand and know the new thing. And then you start thinking in the new thing without needing that old, uh, which is actually really interesting. I'm probably going to digress a little bit, but a little personal stuff. So my wife and I, we have seven kids, uh, a lot of them. I know that's, I did say seven, but we also homeschool. 
And so one of the things that has always interested me, and my wife was a certified teacher. She taught in the public school system for a long time, but she's always been interested in learning and how we learn and how we adapt and things like that. And so it's always been, as far as her homeschooling goes, we've always tried to make sure that we understand how individuals learn and how we can better teach the children so that they're picking up knowledge and they're doing it uniquely. Like not everybody's going to have the same way it's going to work for them for how they learn. So you have to study a lot of different methods. But that's where I kind of came across like the whole idea of scaffolding and, and learning like that, which is always kind of interesting to me. But I think that, you know, developers are the same way. I think a lot of times we think we've grown up and we don't need some of the same skills that we had when we were little trying to learn. But, you know, those are valuable skills to remember and reuse. And some of us use them and don't even think about it, but definitely helps in acquiring new knowledge. So since you're kind of teaching those, what are some of those skills for people listening that they should be identifying or potentially going out and re-researching since you've brought it up? Okay. Like, uh, you mean as far as like, what are some like the scaffolding skills, like things you can do like that? Yeah. Some of those things you've found learning in the different strategies of scaffolding and et cetera, that you're referencing that you found that is useful for learning as children, but also as adults and just learning in general that we might not think about. Mimicking is a, it's a perfect one. Uh, actually, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of, as Elixir has grown, you know, in the early days, you could write something that's kind of a rewrite of another library and nobody would say anything because there wasn't anything out there. Now it's kind of like, well, we already have this. But mimicking is a perfect thing or copying. Go out and find something, a tool that you use that you understand how it works and then go build it in Elixir or whatever language X is. It doesn't have to be Elixir, but, you know, and maybe. And I remember there was um, a post, it was actually in like the Portland Ruby group from a couple of years ago. Somebody had actually said, this is how I learn a new language. First thing that he did was he would write like the LS command in that language. He would write a grep command in that language. Whatever the language it is, because there's certain things that it would teach you, manipulating the file system, how certain aspects of the language work. He understood how LS worked and he understood how grep worked. He didn't have to learn the whole, like, what am I supposed to do? What are all the rules that I'm trying to accomplish? He could actually rewrite those pieces. Now, is it going to be the next tool that everybody uses? Probably not. But it's going to teach him how to do things in that language. And he doesn't have to worry about, this is the scaffolding part, he doesn't have to worry about learning how grep works and what grep does at the same time he's learning language acts. He knows how that works. So he can actually then just kind of focus on learning the language and applying what he knows about whatever he's trying to rewrite. It's little things like that. That's probably one of the most valuable ways to learn a new language is take something that you know. I always hear people say this like, well, I don't have a project to write. There are millions of software projects out there. Just go rewrite one of them. Use that as a stepping stone to learn. Pick something that you know how it works as far as from a, the feature standpoint, like you know what it has to do. And then figure out how to do that in that new language. And I think that's probably one of the things people overlook. And I see a lot of, hey, is there something I can do? Is there, a, you know, something? pick one, you know, just pick one and start writing code. And it's nice, especially with languages like Elixir, that the source code is so easy to get in. And the, and the examples that the Elixir Lang repo has, as far as like Ecto and Plug and, and of course, Elixir itself. There's a lot of good examples of how to write good, clean code in Elixir. So it's, you know, there's plenty of good examples of writing code. 
Plus, there's already a lot of style guides or a style guide out there. There's a lot of information on how to write good Elixir code. And so, you know, really just you know, pick a library and start trying to write it and see what comes out of that. And maybe it's pick a couple. I think the example I was talking about out of the PDX Ruby group, I think he wrote, the first thing he would do is like write LS, then he would write grep. He would kind of progress onto like a command line to-do list, you know, that sort of thing. And of course, eventually like a blog and a, then a web thing, you know, that sort of stuff. One of the libraries I wrote kind of had a dual purpose. It's a library called Calliope. It's a Hamel parser. I had never written a parser. And so the designers at Hashrocket were wanting to help me do Elixir projects, but they wanted to write everything in Hamel. Well, there was no Hamel parsing tool. And I was like, all right, well, it was almost like a trade. I'll write a Hamel parser tool if you'll do the design for some of my stuff. <laughs> and so I basically wrote that. But it also, it gave, you know, there was a lot of things that I learned. Like I knew what Hamel was supposed to look. I had an example of what Hamel looks like, and I just needed to write something that would take that and parse it into HTML. Which was a great experience. I mean, it taught me a lot about you know, the language, about different aspects of the languages, proper ways to deal with recursion and conditionals and everything like that, like how to get around certain things. Dealing with pattern matching on that was, you know. And of course, I learned a lot of lessons, too, of things to avoid. There's a big, nasty, regular expression that you use to parse that, which Steve Palin's actually trying to help out with. We're trying to move away from the regex parsing. I've been kind of caught up with some other stuff, but he uses Calliope quite a bit on his projects. And so he offered to help out trying to get it rewritten. I'm actually doing mostly server-side API work right now, so I don't really deal with front-end code as much anymore. It's hard for me to find the time to go back and maintain it. But anybody who wants to help me maintain it is more than welcome. No, those sound like some great examples of things and ways to think about picking up a new language and finding some utility and having those breakable toys and sandboxes and safe places you can play and pick things up. Exactly. So you kind of talked about Elixir Fountain. I want to give you a chance to talk about it a little more before we run out of time. But you mentioned it started out as a newsletter. It's now going on as a weekly podcast. Do you want to give some more background and information and context about Elixir Fountain and kind of talk about where you see that fitting into the community because you've also done some marketing of Elixir around that since you mentioned the lulls and Elixir Fountain. So do you want to talk about some of those lessons out there for people getting in and finding the community that they're looking for and helping to find and foster that community and some of those lessons that you've learned and tricks you did to get Elixir Fountain going and build a community around it? I know what you're getting at. <laughs> <laughs> And I know you know what I'm getting at, but it's not just that. It's just the, because part of that, it was when we talked offline was that your comment and even in the mini interview we did at ElixirConf was, it's no good if people don't know what's going on in that community. So you haven't mentioned it, but you were talking about the sales and consultancy and there's some marketing background. So just what are some of those things even indirectly that people can take and build up that community and say, there's something missing here. How do I share knowledge and find others around me to share? Because Elixir's got a Slack channel. Other things have started to have Slack channels. We're starting to get more of that community flavor in general, but not everybody coming in finds it necessarily or finds their specific niche that they need to help them learn. And I did say that where, you know, it could be the greatest tool in the world, but if nobody knows it exists, does it matter? You know, so, you know, there's a lot of things in early days with, you know, like the Elixir Fountain, 
there were things happening, but there was no major voice like saying, hey, come check this out. I don't want any like delusions of grandeur. It wasn't like, you know, oh, really, it was just I felt like there was nothing there telling people, hey. And I felt like that that would be a good place to start. You know, start with the newsletter. Start collecting and curating all the information so nobody has to go search for it. It's there for them already. Because I think that's a lot of things, you know. I stumbled upon Elixir. A lot of us that have been using Elixir since, quote unquote, the early days, stumbled on it. We were looking at something else and happened to wander upon it or something like that. You know, not everybody just kind of was like, oh, you know, everybody's using Elixir. I should check it out. But there were things happening back then. People were discovering it, but they were just isolated pockets. And so one of the things that the fountain did really good was collect those and try to broadcast that out try to get that information out so that people could see that things were happening so people could find out about it. A lot of the things that I did was you know, I started talking about it. I did a couple of Ruby talks and then everything after that has been Elixir since probably I guess 2013 or so whatever that first comp was. I've done several talks on Elixir. I've tried to tell anybody that'll listen about it but you know that's just going to get people to look at the language. You know, the language itself is what keeps people around. I mean, it's just such a it's such an awesome language to work with, and it's fun to write. Now, of course, and what we were kind of joking about with is the my elixir status hashtag. Yeah, so that was a bit of a lazy hack back in the. Like I said, everything was very distributed. It was all over, and like it was hard to track things down sometimes. So what I did was I had a nice bit of followers on Twitter. And so I started saying, hey, if you're doing something in Elixir, tweet it with my Elixir status. It didn't matter. Meetups, blog posts, projects, whatever it was, tweet with that and tell everybody what you're doing. Well, I use that as a way to just be able to click the search in Twitter of my Elixir status and I could see everything that everybody was doing. So I knew what to put in the newsletters. You know, and it was a hack, but it worked. And, you know, even to this day, there's a ton of people using it. Every every morning and usually every afternoon, I can, sometimes up to three times a day, I can go on and retweet about 10 or 15 my Elixir statuses. There's a ton of people that still use it. And that's a great way for people that are new to the language that aren't sure where to start. Yes, you can click on the Elixir hashtag, but then it's like, which one do you click on? Do you click on Elixir hashtag, or do you click on Elixir Lang, or you know what is it? But you know the my Elixir status has been a great way for people to find out articles. And I talk to people about, it and they're like, yeah, every day I, I go check the my Elixir status to see what's up there. If I haven't had a chance to retweet stuff, it's already there for them. They can go in and look at it and see what what's going on. And it's a great way just to communicate, to show everybody what you're working on. You know, I think back to when I was in that bubble. Other people were probably working on the same things that I were working on, was working on. They were probably experiencing the same problems, but I was kind of in a bubble. Elixir is still in somewhat early stages where there's people working on it and some people doing some great things, but they're in isolation. And so bringing all those people together, from my perspective, the Elixir community looks huge because I see people from all over doing things because they're very vocal about it and they have a way of communicating that shows up in mass amounts. I think that's a good marketing step to help bring awareness of the community, awareness of the language. And I've noticed, because I, uh, I do pay attention, somebody will say, oh, you sh- I've seen this happen before. Oh, you should tweet that with my Elixir status. Well, next thing you know, the next post from that person is my Elixir status. And, you know, it, it spreads. It's, you know, depends on if you like it or not. If you like it, it spreads great. But if not, I guess it spreads like a virus. <laughs> 
Well, and that's kind of what I was getting at is some of that viral stuff of building a community because, as you said, if you're just in a bubble and you're the only person doing whatever language that is, whether it's F-sharp or Haskell or pick your personal preference of a functional programming language as still functional programming language is pretty small and niche. And no matter where you are in the world, if you can find something that helps track that and share that, you can start to bring that visibility and make that bubble seem smaller. Or, I guess, break down the bubble and make the world seem smaller and pull people into your circle. Yeah, uh, to use a Disney reference, it's a small world after all, right? Yeah, and make that visible because it is a small world. We each have a bunch of smaller niches, no matter what our language, but we all still have some commonality. And how do you say, as you said earlier, if I wanted to do Erlang or Clojure or whatever in Jacksonville, odds are the company's not there. So how do I, A, show people in Jacksonville that the community is there and the community that's there and quiet, that they can be vocal and kind of build that up and say, look, here's something that's going on. It's not just me alone. And so, yeah, I was really impressed with that and have latched on. And that was one of the things personally with me getting into Clojure I thought they did a pretty good job with as well was the Planet Closure feed. And whenever I look for a new language, I try and find the equivalent of that. And the My Elixir status was kind of that on Twitter. Yeah, like I said, it's been great to watch the community grow. And I'll tell you the other thing is I, I see meetups popping up all the time now. I think there was probably three new meetups that I saw today online that I tried to retweet. And they're all over the place. Sometimes they're small as I know there's one, and I think it's in Southampton, that's like three people that meet. But then there, you look at Sweden, and they had 50 people show up and 25 on a wait list. And they're popping up in Chicago, uh, all over the place. Actually, we have one here in Jacksonville that I'm hosting. I kind of felt like it was getting to the point where it seemed a little funny that running the Elixir Fountain, doing the podcast, all that kind of stuff, being very vocal about it, and I don't even have a meetup in my backyard. I went ahead and started one. They're popping up everywhere. And have you found pretty good response from your area of starting a meetup? So Jacksonville is a, a strange breed. There's a lot of .NET and a lot of Java here, but pretty much all the other languages, like even with Hashrocket here, the most we would have at a Ruby meetup would be about 10 to 15 people. We maybe push 20. I hosted RubyJacks, which is the Ruby meetup here. And the last one did it for like a year and a half. The last one I hosted was right after... Ancient City Ruby, which was a conference that Hashrocket put on that I was organizing. The last one that I did had Constantine Haas and Paolo Peretta were the two speakers, which if you're familiar with Ruby, Constantine, of course, from Travis CI and Sinatra, and then Paolo Peretta, who wrote Metaprogramming Ruby and Metaprogramming Ruby 2. And I think we only had maybe 20 people at that one, maybe 25. And so getting a lot of people to come out to meetups is a little hard. So I think we have 10, we'll probably get maybe, um, I'm hoping for about 12 to 15 at this next meetup. We got a meetup coming up this Tuesday. The reason I was getting at that was just more about that community building and ideas of community and finding something that, as you said, Jacksonville might be odd place, but generally that's not odd. That's most places. So if you can find a small community of people in there, then it could be something that you just say... I'm going to schedule this. We're going to meet at the local coffee shop or wherever. And the three of us are just going to get together and we'll slowly build out and share what we're doing kind of thing, even if it's all informal. And we're building our scaffolding programs and sharing our ideas. 
Exactly, exactly. Leonard Frieden was talking to me. He's going to be on the show coming up. And he does a lot of stuff with mob programming, which I thought was really interesting. It's, you know, the idea is, you know, there's a group of people working on a project. And seeing people getting introduced to Elixir, I think it's actually a pretty good fit for trying to learn. Because I guess you rotate in, uh, as he's explaining to me, you can find out, I think it's mobprogramming.org, I think he said. But you know, the idea is that you have a driver that they're the ones that dictate how something's written. And then you have the people that are working with them that give them the ideas for what to write. So everybody kind of works. And then like on some type of time shift, everybody switches, you know, rotates. So everybody takes turn being a driver. Everybody else stays navigating. Which I thought was really interesting, especially for like cases. So one of the, the problems I'm trying to solve at work right now is we have more and more Elixir projects and we need to train Rubius up to be comfortable developing an Elixir. But at the same time, I can't be with everybody on every project. And so the idea of doing this mob programming where you know we have a session a week where we sit down and we're in teams of about six. So you know having the team get together and work on a project together, whether or not it's a kata or something along those lines. We've even talked about doing Brian Hogan's book, The Exercises for Programmers, to where just pick one. Everybody can kind of read up on it or whatever and get to the me. And so then everybody has an idea of what we're building and then kind of just mob it and see if we can knock out a project in you know an hour or two and see how it goes. But yeah, there's definitely different techniques like that for trying to learn that I think are probably going to be valuable, especially trying to get people up and running on Elixir fast. So we've covered a lot of interesting things, covered quite a bit of background, went into learning and community and some of the stuff that I wasn't even thinking we would necessarily get a cover. But is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure is brought up? Anything you want to plug that we haven't talked about so far? I don't know. I feel like I've been running my mouth a lot. (laughs) Haven't I plugged everything, all the things yet? Well, you know, just if people are interested in finding out more about Elixir, check out Elixir Lang on GitHub. But, you know, you can also, if you just kind of want to put your feet in a little bit, you know, you can check out the Elixir Fountain podcast. Like I said, it's a weekly podcast. We have a great variety of guests. And not just Elixirs per se, like we had uh, Jessica Kerr on, who's basically into Java, but we had her on and we were talking about her experiences and things like that. You know, this is great. We also had Robert Baerding on, which of course, he's one of the original authors of Erlang and he's working on the LFE project. So we do talk mainly about Elixir and most of the conversation goes around Elixir, but we do offer like other people's perspective on the language. It's not just a, hey, it's all roses. It's seeing how other people are interpreting what's happening with Elixir and where they see it going. So yeah, definitely the Elixir Fountain podcast. Feel free to check out you know, libraries like Calliope and uh, definitely Mobius. Mobius is an awesome library that we've been working on that's got some really, I think it's got a really cool future. So, And both of those are on GitHub. And then any other th- recommendations in general you want to give people that you think they should know about in general? There's all sorts of recommendations I have for people. <laughs> That's my problem. <laughs> if you're new to Elixir, you know, I tell people, depending on their learning style, what they need first. Do they, you can check out the Prague Prague book, which is always a good intro. If you just, you know, you want to just touch on the basics before diving in. If you feel comfortable that like you can jump over the basics, you're moving right into like uh, Elixir in Action is an awesome book. Sasha Yurich did a great job with that book, just understanding concepts and how some of the more complex pieces of Elixir uh, are put in place. That's a great one. You know, I have different people 
asked me different questions about, you know, like how to get started. But like I said, just start writing code. Just get out there. The For one, docs are a first-class citizen in Elixir. So there's plenty of documentation on most of the applications out there, most of the libraries out there. Feel free to just dive in and, and go to it. It's fun. I've seen so many people post like, wow, this is just fun to write code again. It's, it's been a while. Depending on what you want. And if you follow Elixir Fountain on Twitter, you know, feel free to follow it on Twitter. Feel free to check out the My Elixir status to see what other people are doing. Of course, there's always the, you know, the mailing list and things like that to get involved in, IRC and Slack. Definitely plenty of opportunities to get involved and to learn more about what's happening with Elixir. And then you covered a bunch, but is there any other call to actions that you want to ask from those listening to either go out and... Just go out and start writing code. <laughs> well, and learn something. I mean, it's don't be afraid to break out of your shell. Just start writing code. Find something you want to rewrite and go with it. Sounds good. So where can people find you online if they want to follow you? Because you've got a couple of places, so you want to list them all off where people can track you down and keep up with what's going on in the world of Johnny Wynn. Well, so like I said, it's a little confusing. I'm Johnny underscore Rugger on Twitter. You can also follow the Elixir Fountain on Twitter. I'm actually N-U-R-U-G-G-E-R-0-7 on GitHub. So if you want to follow any of the... It's NewRugger07 on GitHub. Yes, don't ask. I have debated for a long time switching those to kind of match up a little bit, but there's you know always a reason not to. But yeah, on GitHub, NewRugger07. On Twitter, Johnny underscore Rugger. And that's pretty much it for right now. But yeah, and anytime, if you have questions about the fountain or anything like that, you can always email me at johnny at elixirfountain.com. And we'll make sure to get those in the show notes for everybody so they can follow you and track you down and keep up to date with you. Sweet. So I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you very much, Johnny, for giving your time and talking with me. I've talked to you before. We were talking at online via Twitter and at ElixirConf. But it was good to just sit back in talk to you again and expand on some of those ideas and get some of those conversations recorded to be able to be shared with the world. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'll have to get you on the Elixir Fountain now. Thank you. And until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.